Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello, and welcome to everyone joining us for this episode of Read Smart, the official podcast of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. My name is Toby Mundy, and I'm the director of the prize. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be speaking to all of the six shortlisted authors for this year's award about their remarkable books. On today's episode, we're speaking to Jeremy Eichler, who's been shortlisted for his work Time's Echo, The Second World War, The Holocaust and The Music of Remembrance, which is published in the UK by Faber and Faber and in the United States by Alfred Knopf. Jeremy's work considers the capacity of classical music to act as a witness to history. The book considers the life and the key works of four of the greatest composers of the 20th century, Richard Strauss, Arnold Schoenberg, Benjamin Britten, and Dmitry Shostakovich. All uh, had direct experiences of uh, the Second World War and of anti-Semitic persecution. Uh, welcome, Jeremy, and congratulations on being shortlisted for this year's award. Thank you so much for having me, Toby. There are millions of things, thousands of things to talk about in this book, um, and some of our listeners won't yet have read it. Um, so... I'd like to start on the 4th of November 1948, if I may, in the Carlisle Gymnasium in Albuquerque in New Mexico, where something, something happened. Can you, can you explain what happened and why it's so significant? Yes, absolutely. That's a great date to begin our conversation on. It's, uh, this was the world premiere of the very first musical memorial to the Holocaust by a major composer anywhere uh, in the United States or anywhere else. This world premiere took place in the sweat-soaked university gymnasium, as you mentioned, uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. There were actually, uh, it was, there were amateur forces in the orchestra, you know, uh, a, um, secretaries, students, florists. There was a, a railroad, uh, railroad engineer. Yeah. And, and there were cowboys singing in the chorus of this work on this remarkable occasion. Uh, you might wonder why was the very first musical memorial to the Holocaust performed under these conditions? And uh, and to answer that question really will, would bring us to the heart of some of the bigger questions that the book is trying to pose and invite readers to think about with me. What is the connection between sound and memory? How does art bear witness to history? What sorts of windows does do these musical memorials that I look at in the book open up onto what I call the social history of memory? In this case, we had, it was remarkably early, 1948. It's hard for us to remember sometimes in our sort of super-saturated Holocaust memory environments that back then nobody wanted to think about or talk about what had happened during the Second World War or the Holocaust. And so a work like this one, which was actually written for Serge Kusevitsky and with Schoenberg, no doubt, anticipating a world premiere by the very august Boston Symphony Orchestra. When that work arrived, it seemed the conductor did not want to touch it. And so the world premiere fell to an a, a Austrian-Jewish emigre named Kurt Frederick, who was living and working at the time in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's really a remarkable story about the history of memory in America and it touches on many of the really, to my mind, extraordinary themes that sort of avail themselves and open up before us when we start to look at some of these connections between sound and history and memory. Um, and before we we move on from this subject, I mean, the performance itself 
was a tremendous success, wasn't it? And and raised a rather unexpected, perhaps, question about the way an audience should respond to a work that addresses these themes. Is that right? A- absolutely. Uh, the work was very much cheered at its at its first performance and many of their early performances. Uh, it, it's not exactly. It's less clear what the audiences were actually hearing, how much they were understanding. Uh, it's sort of impossible to go back into their minds. Of course, at this point, though, some of the records that have been left behind by reviewers and, and others is, are, are quite tantalizing in that regard. It, it was very, very much, it was very much cheered with ovations and in fact, to the point where the conductor felt he needed to repeat it on the spot. And the book does, I think you're referring to this large, this other line of questions the book does raise, well, what should art's role really be in, in helping us memorialize atrocity and really should a work like this is the right response from an audience actually applause or cheering you know should should genocide be really the stuff of a night out at carnegie hall or the barbican you know is this um is is how should we as listeners respond to these works that bear witness in these profound ways to some of these darkest moments of the 20th century so there are all sorts of ethical questions at the heart of the book as well Yes, and had Schoenberg considered that question before before the premiere? Did it did it occur to him? That's an interesting that's an interesting one. I'm not sure to what extent he did think about that. Uh, we, we he didn't leave us very many notes, sort of to to go on in terms of um, what was going through his mind at the time, and I'm not sure that he was as concerned about those questions as I became while thinking about these subjects. But, you know, these days, because it's it's worth saying that work has uh, is just around seven minutes long. It has a part for a narrator um, describing a scene from an extermination camp. So there are other works I look at where you could say the music's memorial functions are sort of operating uh, beneath the kind of music, the music's sort of word wordless veil of secrecy almost. There's a kind of, there's a semantic blurring that happens because we don't have the specificity of language. In this case, there is a kind of, uh, there is a very precise text that the narrator is just, is, is recounting and describing a scene from an extermination camp that refers to, uh, actually to gas chambers. And so for that early post-war moment, it was sort of frighteningly specific and I think added to the shocking nature of this piece because it came at a time where, in fact, most of its audiences would have never even heard of the, the genre of survivor testimony whatsoever. And here we have uh, ostensibly the figure of a survivor as the narrator of a musical memorial. It was fantastically early in terms of memorialization. I mean, Wiesel's Night wasn't didn't appear f- until the following, till later in the following decade. Was that fifty six or fifty seven? I think it was incredibly early. There wasn't a single built memorial to the Holocaust anywhere in this country, and exactly as you say, uh, Wiesel's Night, Primo Levi's survival in Auschwitz, none of these now what we think of as iconic Holocaust testimonies in literature, none of them could even find a publisher. I think that Knight was, the, the agents for Knight tried over 15 different publishers before they found one. And, you know, and that was already after the work had been extensively rewritten and, uh, and championed by various other writers before it could find a proper audience. So it was a very, very different time indeed. Your, the book, your book makes the case for the power of music as, as, a, as 
culture's memory, I, is that, I think, is an art form that is uniquely capable of carrying forward memories of the past. Now, this is a huge sort of intellectual and philosophical proposition. Um, is, this an, is this an idea that you've always had, or have, has this idea grown and developed in your mind of this, this relationship between music and time? Um, and what is it? So there's two questions. This idea of a relationship between music and time, has it grown over time? What is the nature of that relationship? And, and why is music unique in this regard? And, and maybe three versions of the same question. Yes. So this is, a, this is another great question, Toby. The, for, for me, I've been working as a classical music critic for over two decades. And I think I came, I came to it with a sense almost you might say sort of an instinctual sense that there I would be sitting in these concert halls and just have this feeling that there were these sort of profound transmissions from the past that were kind of flooding off the stage and you know then you sort of look to your right and and you know some gentlemen's perhaps catching up on some sleep and look to the left and someone else is reading their program notes very diligently and sort of realized that eventually that perhaps not everyone was approaching it the same way. I, I ended up following my own sort of hunger to understand more deeply the cultures uh, from which these works emerged, the, you know, understand the worlds that were being transmitted to me through this very abstract medium uh, by pursuing m my own training as a cultural historian of modern Europe. And, you know, and it was really those combined perspectives as someone really sort of deep in the, on the experiential side of, of listening, if you will, and, and also then trying to um, formulate an, an opinion or a kind of bridge to, um, to a public through, through one's writing when work as a music critic and my training as a historian that came together um, in, in the sensibility that, that informs this whole book as a whole. To, to answer your question, a bit more directly, I really I have to be careful here. I, I don't think I, I don't really think of it as a competition between these different art forms. You know, well, is it, you know, had a painting versus a poem versus a work of classical music, you know, but I, I do think that each art form carries forward the past differently. And it was, and, you know, so when I speak about music's unique way of doing so, that's really what I'm getting at. I wanted to, I was looking for years to find a book so that I could read it about music's approach to post-war memory. And there are really thoughtful approaches to, you know, the architecture of memory, the cinema of memory, again, the poetry of memory. And I was really surprised that I never found the book I wanted to read uh, on music and memory. And eventually I realized that, you know, before I would be able to read it, perhaps I would have to write it. <laughs> and, and tell us about some of the affinities then between music and memory. Yes, yes. So, you know, if you think about it, music, of course, uh, is a time-based art. And, uh, you know, when a composer sets down notes on a page in 1823, let's say, and we hear, you know, in, in setting down those notes, they are distilling you know, all of these worlds of thought and feeling and emotion, perhaps something, perhaps something important or even essential about the society in which they live, the times in which they live. They put all those down, you know, in, on, in, it's distilled into these notes on the page. And then we have someone, you know, two centuries later who comes along and performs those notes for us. We're hearing literally the past speaking in the present. And the more I came to think about it, the more I came to think about music as the language of time's non-linearity, 
I, we in everyday life, we sort of think of ourselves as kind of trapped within this sort of lockstep, you know, chronology, one moment following the others. Uh, music can, kind of confounds that one-way chronology. It brings closer these moments of time and moments of history that otherwise might remain quite distant. And if you think about it, that is by definition what memory also does. Memory flouts the forward march of the years. It confounds the one-way linearity of time. It challenges the objective distance of history, right? Something, an event that's seared in memory might feel to us even closer uh, than some things that perhaps happened only yesterday or last week. So this this idea that memory, that music and memory on some very basic levels share these sort of elective affinities, that was something else I really enjoyed thinking about, writing about, and inviting readers to join me in exploring uh, through the pages of Time's Echo. You called, I think in the book somewhere, you call classical symphonies vast archives of public memory. Yes, exactly. What does that mean? Well, you know, it's sort of, does the meaning of this music reside in the works themselves? Does it reside in us, you know, that's things that we just sort of project onto it? These are all very valid questions that have been taken up, of course, by many others from varying perspectives. Time's Echo contends that the meaning really emerges from the relationship between the two and that, you know, a composer might have his or her own intention in writing down and in, in creating a work of music. Uh, and that that intention can sort of set an interpretive path, launch a work along a certain interpretive path into the world. But that even if we were to be able to know completely what his or her intentions were in creating the work, that can no, cannot sort of fix the work's meaning over time, that these things shift and that they accumulate meaning over time in a way with each fresh performance, the work's meaning is kind of triangulated anew in this relationship between composer, performer, and then and then uh, us, the listener, of course. So thinking about how these works over time are kind of like these those medieval writing tablets, the palimpsests, where people would write and then write again and then write again. And one of the things I enjoyed trying to do is figuring out what stories these works today carry with them uh, that this book could open up for readers and then allow us to hear perhaps once more when we listen to this work. Uh, these works or music really in general as culture's memory. The book um, goes quite strongly against the contemporary tendency to separate the artist, who can be quite morally complex, let's say, from their art, if you like, that many of us who took humanities degrees in the last few de decades have been taught that, uh, you know, that you focus on the art rather than the, the, the artist. But you, you go against that. Um, Tell us why you did so, and tell us in particular about the challenges of using that approach to write about someone like Richard Strauss, for example. Yes. So, you know, I, I think, um, I, you know, I try to indulge a reader's patience or perhaps pique their curiosity in thinking of these things not always as, as quite linear, you know, and I, I do, I, I would join those who are sort of uh, suspicious of kind of these reductive readings of the art exclusively through the prism of the life. You know, in many ways, Time's Echo is, among other things, among many other things, a collective biography of these four mm -hmm. composers. And it was in that sense, I followed I followed the path that was sort of sketched by some of the essays by uh, the French writer uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who talked about how, you know, it's not really the life that we should look to to illuminate the art. 
in, in, in the ways that you are describing, but that we should really also remember that so oftentimes it's the art that illuminates the life. Right? <laughs> and so going in, going in through the works of art as well, kind of switching, flipping the telescope around, if you will, and, and trying to understand these incredible 20th century lives through the prism of their art and, and, and the other kinds of, the other lives, the other texts, the other landscapes that these works of art illuminate, all kind of, they all become in a way sort of, uh, they all, I think, contribute to our understanding of, of the cultural milieu, the lives themselves and, and the art, you know, I, I do think that uh, that's, I did not want to let composers like uh, Richard Strauss or really any of the four that I looked at come across as caricatures, as sort of overly simplified human beings. They are very complicated lives and I did not want to, and, and very kind of in the case of Strauss, as you mentioned, made some very, very uh, complicated uh, and frankly problematic choices, morally speaking, during the war years. Strauss, as, as some of your listeners will know, chose to stay in Europe and stay in Germany and, and, and collaborated with the Nazi regime for the, during the early years of the Third Reich. So I, I absolutely did not want to sort of, you know, sweep that under the rug and say, well, let's just listen to the art as if the choices of the man had had no consequence. By the same token, I did not want to only listen to the art through the prism of the life. And, you know, in one of the more interesting, in a way, more creative turns that Times Echo makes is actually trying to say, okay, if we have an incredibly powerful musical memorial like Metamorphosen, which was the one that Strauss wrote near the very end of the war, and there are no words in it. It's a, it's a purely instrumental work uh, for string orchestra, incredible sort of a web of sorrowing beauty. It's really, it's really quite an extraordinary work. Probably the piece that gets performed most often of all the works that I talk about in Times Echo. We know it's a musical memorial, really only because Strauss writes beneath a quote from the funeral march of Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. He writes the words in memoriam, and that's it. He doesn't say what it's memorializing. He doesn't say in memoriam to whom or to what. And he really leaves that all to our, you know, to, for us to interpret. And one thing that the books, one thing that I that I do in the book is just to ask. Well, perhaps it's not really his to answer anymore. He's certainly not around to do so. And perhaps we could actually, in in thinking about these other things going on around him at the time, I tell the story of Strauss's Jewish neighbors, for instance all these other examples of suffering that were right in his own backyard during the years that he stayed in Germany that to which frankly he seemed often quite oblivious and I you know I tell the story of these other completely forgotten lives and I ask us to think about whether you know why can't these some of these other stories now be inscribed actively if you will into this music so that certainly for myself and I encourage other readers to join me once you know these stories I find it very difficult to not also remember those when I hear Strauss's Metamorphosen. So part of this is also kind of what can we do with these works? What can we ask them to remember for us, perhaps in addition to some of the things that their composers originally had in mind? <laughs> oh, what a wonderful answer. Um, the book opens with an earlier epoch, doesn't it? With the portraits of um, a trio of German-speaking Jewish composers, Felix Mendelssohn, Gustav Mahler and Schoenberg himself. 
And you you tell their stories as a means of exploring a particularly kind of optimistic Jewish approach to culture, don't you? Can you can you tell us a little bit about that and about the idea of Bildung and the role it plays in the early part of your story? Absolutely. You know, before we could come to understand, I found the meaning of these incredible post-war musical memorials. It was really important to understand how, in a way, this very same art form had been asked for over a century to carry forward humanity's highest dreams and ideals, the kind of utopian aspirations of German culture. If we think of the last movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, where he sh where he sets Schiller's Ode to Joy and this kind of vision of universal brotherhood and this, this life of freedom and dignity as, that would be available to all, you know, th this was this was the kind of the moral, the the kind of metaphysical task that music was saddled with was. That's perhaps not the right way of putting it. This was the music. This, these were some of the ideals that music had been asked to carry forward. And in fact, this was the kind of crucible, the ethical crucible that in which German music, the idea of German music was forged. And so it seemed like it, it really was important to understand. And in some ways, I chose the four composers I chose because they were of this generation that inherited these 19th century ideals of what music might express, these kinds of, this optimism, the kind of, these these hopes and dreams of music's long 19th century. They were, they were the generation that inherited them. And then, and, but they, they were also the generation that sort of spanned the profound rupture represented by the Holocaust and the Second World War. And it was a rupture, Toby Wright, in the, in the most profound sense. I quote the philosopher Jürgen Habermas, who famously said that the Holocaust was a rupture in the layer of solidarity among all who wear a human face. Right. So how do we hear these post-war memorials even more deeply when we come to realize this older history of utopian aspiration that they also carry inside of them? And then how do we end, how do we hear this pre-war music, you know, this these 19th century romantic works, works even like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, how should we be hearing them today on the other side of this rupture? Because a work like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the book contends, you know, cannot or certainly should not mean the same thing before and after Auschwitz. Because if we, you know, this idea of a timeless masterpiece is so in, in some ways ingrained in kind of the culture of classical music today. But when we call the work timeless, we're basically taking it outside of time, outside of history, rather, I should say. And the work, the book contends that these works can't travel between then and now. They cannot make that journey unscathed. The, 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 the survivor Paul Ceylon talks about works of art traveling through time to meet us, not above it, not beyond it, but really through it. And when we when we neglect to hear the kind of scars inflicted on these older works of music by the history that separates us and them, you know, I think it we risk reducing their very sincere optimism and these beautiful kind of dreams that are inside of this work to a sort of almost like a freedom kitsch, right? I wanted to 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 give us new ways and in some senses deeper ways of thinking both about these post-war memorials and this larger history, this, this centuries of utopian dreaming, that, that these enlightenment dreams, if you will, that the older music is also capable of carrying forward. And I should just add, these, this history, this older, these enlightenment, these enlightenment dreams that I argue in the book are really no less valid 
for having not yet come to pass, right? They're, they're, it's a vision of what a society could be that, of course, is now completely buried in the rubble of history, but that, you know, I, I think that it's a history that's still worth remembering. And in some ways, these works, the, the, the book suggests that these older works might remind us that we need to kind of choose these values as a society at every turn, that they, that the history, the rubble that lies on top of them does not prove that the ideals themselves were necessarily fundamentally flawed, but that they can't be taken for granted and must be affirmed and chosen by a society at every turn. There's a really wonderful chapter about the impact of the war on Benjamin Britten, who is one of your four composers. Um, he, who was a, a pacifist, of course, and yet the war has a Second World War has a tremendous impact upon him. There's a sort of a period between him visiting Belson in '45 and then the premiere of his War Requiem in '62. Tell us a little bit about about the impact of the war on Britain and, and about the, the effect on him creatively and morally. Yes, the the critic, the British critic Hans Keller once described Britain as as one of the purest and most uncomplicated pacifists in human history. And I, I love that quote because I think both of the adjectives, if I'm remembering them correctly, are 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 very apt. He did have a very sincere faith um, in 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 his pacifist ideals. And there was a way in which they were very uncomplicated. Uh, and and you and you you know he spent he spent the early years of the Second World War in the United States, sort of far from the collective experience of his countrymen in the UK, and certainly, you know, especially during the years of of the Blitz, for instance, when there, where there was so much, you know, suffering not just, uh, you know, not just in these arenas of war, but but of course the Second World War blurred the distinction between, you know, between the front and the home front and and so with with all of this kind of indiscriminate aerial bombings right of, of the cities so britain missed out on all of that and i think he came back almost hungry for some sense uh, he you know he had what the what the violinist Yehudi menuhin called you know this this hunger for community with the suffering world and you know he still had wanted to have some kind of sense of felt contact it seemed with 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 what the world had just experienced. Uh, and so he convinced Menuhin to take him as a pianist in a tour of the DP camps uh, in July 1945, the DP, the DP camps of Germany, including most famously, he and Menuhin gave what sounds like an extraordinary recital in the DP camp of Belsen, which had been liberated by British troops only weeks earlier. And, you know, it sounded like the, the audience they played for Menuhin describes it at the, as really just extraordinary, an extraordinary moment where he likens their receiving their first live music as almost like, you know, the first gesture of kindness, the first drink of water, the first taste of food uh, for an individual who had been just uh, suffering in these completely uh, unimaginable ways. So Britain thrust himself into that experience. And then years later, apparently the trip to Belsen affected him so deeply that he couldn't speak about it when he came home and really didn't speak about it for years afterward until near the end of the, his life he told his partner Peter Pierce that it had affected everything that he had written since then. So, you know, 
it, it hit Britain's pacifism was very pure and very uncomplicated, perhaps in the sincerity with which it was held, and also very complicated in the ways that the war, no doubt, a, a war as complicated, morally speaking, as the Second World War, um, really challenged it in ways that I'm not sure he was fully prepared to handle. And yet the War Requiem, which is a towering piece, um, seems more rooted in the First World War in some respects, creatively. Yes, exactly. That was the war that a pacifist could write about, right, with a sense of almost a, 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 a clearer conscience, right, because... You know, I mean, he went straight to the trench poetry of Wilfred Owen, which is so extraordinary on its own terms and brings up so so powerfully and palpably this also this kind of universal truth about the what you know in in, in Owen's phrase the pity of war, right? The fact that these that these soldiers from these opposing sides could be just annihilating each other willy nilly in these battlefields, you know, in these staggering numbers for a cause that most of them could not even articulate. Right, they were and they were dying in these conflagrations for you know for for these abstract virtues and and Owen was really searing in his verse about the kind of the depravity and the bankruptcy the moral bankruptcy that was at the heart of the First World War between these combatant countries, uh, but it's it it becomes much more difficult to make that claim right when it's when it's an example of you know, of, of the allies going up against the fascist powers when you have, you know, state-sponsored genocide happening, um, when you have, when you have indiscriminate aerial bombing of civilians, you know, so th this idea that I, I think that it would have been much more difficult for Britain to grapple with the Second World War on its own terms. And in a way, he found a way in the War Requiem, he still makes a very powerful pacifist statement by turning to the poetry of the First World War. And we might, it's interesting to note, I, when I looked at this a little bit more closely, Toby, because it's always been a mystery to me, why, why this First World War orientation in this iconic Second World War memorial for Britain's War Requiem. And, you know, I, I came to realize that, in fact, the War Requiem in this way really profoundly reflects these larger contours of British collective memory at the time. In a, in a way, you know, Ted Hughes into the 1960s was calling the First World War the UK's national ghost, right? That this was, it was the First World War that really haunted the British collective imagination in ways that ran deep, you know, far beyond the musical sphere. And so in, in a lot of ways, in, in making the choices that he did, in making that displacement of commemorating this later war through the prism of its predecessor, Benjamin Britten was in some ways reproducing a lot of the kind of thinking and the contours of, of the British memorial imagination writ large. Mm. One of the, um, I, don't, I don't want our listeners to have the impression that this is a work of great abstraction because it's, it's replete with narrative and characterization, incredibly powerful sense of time and place. And as one of your reviewers, I think, said, a novelist's eye for detail. Tell us a little bit about the influence of W.G. Zabeld and perhaps others on the way that this work is written and constructed. Thank you so much for asking about that. Um, you know, as, you, as you're hearing, as, as your listeners are perhaps hearing, this is a book that was, you know, fired by some big questions that I had about, you know, about 
sound and memory. I really also about the distinction between information and knowledge. We know we could pause here, Toby, to ask, does the world really need another book about this era, right? Okay. We're, we're, aren't we sort of already drowning in information about, you know, the Second World War and the Holocaust? And well, as T.S. said, where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Exactly, exactly. And so the, so the book tries to, 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 to reprise Eliot's line and really reprise that distinction and ask whether really art in general and music in particular could not give us a kind of access that we don't have right now, precisely at the moment that the living memory of this era is disappearing, right? We're losing this profound link as the living generation recedes that, you know, that experience this time. And so it seemed like an important time to be asking these questions about, you know, about art's power as a bridge to the past. Um, but how does one ask those questions? You know, one could really do this as a scholarly study that, you know, in, in a really kind of abstract or theoretical way. Um, but I was really intent um, on writing a book that could explore these questions, these ideas, uh, these bigger themes through stories, through this tapestry of stories. And I really wanted to to weave a tapestry that involved not just the lives of these kind of great composers, so to speak, but also um, the individuals from the culture around them that that had in so many cases, these stories that were completely lost to history. Um, you know, so I, I, I wanted to tell about the forgotten as well as the remembered. And I, in doing so, I also wanted, I was inspired by a line by the, the writer and uh, the scholar Svetlana Boim, who said, when excavating the past, we need a dual archaeology of memory and of place. So the idea, the role of landscape in the book is also central for me. I, I, my research took me to all of these different, five different countries <clears throat> for archives and for visiting the sites that are connected to some of the stories that the music tells or some of the conditions of its birth. And I wanted the reader to also come with me on those trips to feel these, pla that feel these places, something, the texture of the landscapes, and to think about how landscape also in its own way can carry forward memory in ways that can be quite resonant with music. How do you weave it all together? You know, as a writer, that was where I turned to, for me, what the, the, the post-war writer who did this in just the most magisterial and inspiring way. And, you know, and that was W.G. Sebald, you know, who, you know, born in 1945. And it, for, for my sense of things, and I think for many, you know, the great post-war German poet of memory uh, and one who perhaps not incidentally made his life uh, on the Suffolk coast, you know, teaching at the University of East Anglia. Really? And, not so far and, from Benjamin Britten country. Not so far from Benjamin Britten. And in fact, one of his books, The Rings of Saturn, takes the reader in this very profound way on these sort of walking tours of of the very landscape that Brit where Britain was born and spent most of his life. And, you know, and you have this sense of a, it's a kind of... Um, it's just a really amazing literary sensibility that you read it, your listeners who know Zabalt's work will not need any convincing from me to, to sort of appreciate the ways in which um, those works of historical fiction, but ha which have a lot of sort of tr historical truth within them, they're sort of, they're very much focused on, on the present day, on, on the moment of the now, but all of these very profound ways in which that moment still incorporates all of these shadows that have fallen from these past lives, these, these kinds of even these blinding 
historical catastrophes that now come down to us with this kind of opaque, you know, milky, almost like a filtered light through these, through a, as if through a series of scrims. And, you know, and, and, you know, art, art, it, um, in, in Zabal's telling, I often find, he, you know, he's amazing writing about architecture, for example, and how it's a sort of record of these older societies that that is there with us, standing right in front of us to be read today, you know, if we have the eyes and the interest to do so. And I always wondered, you know, why why doesn't Zabald write more about music? Because in some ways it's it's the most, it's perhaps the most Zabaldian art form of all for some of the reasons we were talking about earlier. And, you know, in, in some ways, his novels really made me think uh, uh, quite, um, they really inspired me to think about these time traveling qualities that he finds in other art forms. I wanted, it made me think a lot about those qualities vis-a-vis -vis music and the idea of having this kind of literary model. It, I say with profound humility, this is not a model really, it's an inspiration for what language can do around these questions of memory and art. And if, uh, you know, if in some small way his, his works, you know, guided this one, then, you know, I'm, I, I feel very, I'd feel very glad to know that. You mentioned that Zabald was sort of um, rooted in the now, and you've, you've said somewhere that your book is also angled towards the present and the future. Um, what did you mean by that? And if I may follow up, I mean, we, the one of the, the fourth composer we haven't discussed is Shostakovich. And you're, I read somewhere that you were writing about Shostakovich as Russia was invading Ukraine. Would you, would you speak a little about about what you mean about how some, your book is angled towards the present and the future and also about the impact of, of events around you as you were putting your book together and writing it? Yes. Um, you know, it was really important for me um, to try to approach this history really from the pres perspective of the present um, in, in a few different ways. You know, in one sense, I really wanted... I really wanted to ask this question of at, at, a, at this moment where knowledge is, is being replaced by information in, you know, in so many senses, um, this question of how, how do we still live with, a, with, with empathy, with a sense of felt contact for the past, you know, and, and what, what might art's role be in, in, in creating those bridges um, those those were really fundamental animating questions for me, you know. So this was not kind of history for history's sake, but really history for the sake of life in the here and now, and and um, and and in a way also for for the future. Because if you think of it, if you think about it, Toby, every memorial makes a choice about what values from the past, uh, what stories, what lives, perhaps what 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 knowledge from the past it seeks to carry forward. And what's carried forward can, of course, be built upon. And so in that sense, every memorial looks to the future. You know, I, 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 um, I found myself remembering uh, the, the, the German romantic Friedrich Schlegel has a lovely line that gets quoted sometimes where he says, the historian is a prophet facing backwards. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and if you think about it in those same terms, you know, the book tries to say that a memorialist perhaps 
is a historian angled toward the future. And that's, that's really the, that's kind of the position that, that the book want, wants to take. Um, you ask about Shostakovich, about writing in the here and now. We could do a whole other podcast. I was about say, each that. of the, each of these composers, you could write a whole book about or books about, and it's so. Um, yes, we may. You may have yeah. to brief. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, and of course, and I, I should say that, that it, not just one could, but of course, there are yes uh, a, a vast secondary literature, source literature for, on on all of these composers that this book relied upon. I could not have been written without. It really stands on the shoulders of the work of so many specialist scholars. Um, in, in all these different disciplines and, and biographers, frankly, I was really felt privileged to have the opportunity to do some of my own archival research, but I also was, was um, reliant on the work of many writers and scholars who came before me. With, with Shostakovich, um, as you say, I was writing during the time of Putin's invasion and, you know, the, the, the portion of the book on Shostakovich does, uh, you know, does present in its own way uh, as a kind of capsule biography. Capsule isn't perhaps a quite word, quite the right word. This portion on Shostakovich also presents a biography of of Shostakovich, but also focuses on his kind of status as a sort of diarist for his country's own kind of tragically failed utopian experiment, and a composer who, through his art, kind of gave voice to this collective and often a very individual experience that Soviet citizens living through these very dark decades weren't allowed to voice themselves. You know, I had, I've had um, Russian emigres of my acquaintance say to me, you know, what his music, the, the truth that his music spoke, it was what we felt, but we, we did not or could not have the words to say it ourselves. So, you know, there's these very profound ways in which he spoke spoke for so many um, of his countrymen in, in that time. I, uh, one of the stories the book also tells is, and again, uh, you know, in really granular ways, to your point, I didn't want to describe these things through kind of abstract historiography, but really through storytelling. So I tell the story of the Black Book of Russian Jewry, which was an attempt to document the atrocities of the Holocaust on Soviet soil in real time, an extraordinary effort and an extraordinary document that was completely suppressed by Stalin um, and the, the um, members of the Jewish anti-fascist committee who were responsible for putting it together. Some of them were murdered in cold blood by his associates after the war. So there is this larger history of suppression of Holocaust memory on Soviet soil that happened under Stalin's watch, but then was continued in some ways uh, by Khrushchev and other Soviet leaders. And so the book tells that story of forgetting, of the war on Holocaust memory that the Soviet Union perpetuated in its time. And it was really, frankly, extraordinary, Toby, to be working on those chapters at the same time that this new invasion happened with Putin kind of reprising all of these dreams of Soviet empire and quite obviously also reprising this kind of war on memory that the history I write about reveals was always in a way part of the dream of empire itself. And, you know, there could be no more direct representation or embodiment of that reprised war on memory than the fact that early on, and I think it was February of last year, um, one of the missile attacks that, that Russia launched 
hit the memorial site of the Babi Yar massacre, uh, which was the largest massacre of Jews on Soviet soil uh, of, during the entire Holocaust. 33,000 over two days were, were gunned into the Babi Yar ravine. And so they're, so these missiles are now attacking this memorial site. And in a way that, you know, it, it, if ever there was a moment while I was writing that made it feel like this was still, you know, Faulkner has a famous line, the past is never dead, it's not even past. <laughs> and, you know, that was a moment that really reinforced that truth like no other. Goodness me. Um, thank you. That is unfortunately all we have time for. I've got about 200 other questions, but I shall have to find a way to ask them another time. Um, thank you so much, Jeremy, for uh, joining us today and very, very best of luck in the next stages of the, the competition. Thank you so much, Toby. I really appreciate it. Thank you as well to, um, to the jury uh, for, for just uh, for considering all of these works so closely and for yourself, really, to yourself, really, for, for such an illuminating conversation. It was a huge pleasure and privilege, so thank you. Um, that is indeed all we have time for today. We'd like, as always, to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its continued and very generous support of this podcast. Join us again on the Read Smart podcast uh, soon, where we will be speaking to another of the 2023 shortlisted authors. The winner will be announced at an award ceremony at the Science Museum in London, generously supported also by the Blavatnik Family Foundation, on Thursday the 16th of November. The winner announcement will also be live streamed across the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction social media channels. If you're interested in finding out more about the shortlist or any other aspect of the prize, you can visit our website or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and TikTok at BG Prize. You can also sign up for our newsletter. Thanks for listening. Do please join us again next time. Thank you. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.